Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And today, as we continue on in the book of Ephesians, we're talking marriage. And uh, marriage is a great thing. Marriage is an incredible gift. Uh, marriage is one of the very first gifts that the Lord specifically gave to humanity. And it's beautiful and important and precious. It's also really hard. It's hard. And if, uh, if you had... If you're not here with your spouse, you might have said amen, right? But, but because you're maybe here with your spouse, you go, I don't want to say that, but you thought it. So marriage is hard, and it has always been hard. It's been hard from the very beginning. Even the very first people who experienced marriage experienced it, and it was hard. And uh, we actually have found some archaeological evidence for this. They have found um, the tombstones, actually, for Adam and Eve. It's a pretty amazing discovery. And here's, here's what they found on these, is that on Adam's tombstone... It said, at least my wife could not complain that I never listened to her. And on Eve's tombstone, it said, I married what used to be the perfect man. And so marriage has just been hard from the beginning. And some people think marriage is like a flies on a screen door. You know, a lot of people are trying to get in if they aren't in, and people are trying to get out if they are in. And so marriage is just can be a very, very difficult and a tricky thing. And it's so hard that some people might even be tempted to to do this. This was a story I read in uh, abcnews.com. This was remarkable. It said, by all accounts, Erica Anderson's wedding was perfect. I was on cloud nine. It was just delightful, Anderson said. She had the white dress, the ring, the vows, all the accoutrements of a traditional wedding. The only thing missing was the groom. For the 36-year-old, tying the knot was about making a formal commitment to the love of her life, herself. I've been told that I'm a great catch, and today I am catching myself, she said. And here's her wedding ceremony. You wouldn't believe this if there wasn't picture evidence. But this is remarkable. She said, you know what? I, I can't find Mr. Wright, but I feel like I'm Mrs. Wright, so I'll marry myself. And what's fascinating about this is you might read that and or see that and just go, oh my gosh. One more brick in the evidence of insane humanity, right? Like, we are nuts. What is wrong with us? But here's what I want you to think about. She's at least being honest about saying, you know what? The only person I've ever really been committed to is me. So I'm going to formalize that commitment. Most people, even married people, feel the exact same way, have just never been honest enough to say it. So as we dive into this discussion today on marriage, I want us to consider that maybe the biggest problem isn't our spouse. Maybe the biggest problem isn't our circumstance. Maybe the biggest problem isn't our financial situation. Maybe the biggest problem isn't that we've got little kids and we're just exhausted all the time. Maybe the biggest problem is us, our selfishness. In Tim and Kathy Keller's book, on uh, marriage, the meaning of marriage. Here's what uh, they write. Tim says, self-centeredness is a havoc-wreaking problem in many marriages, and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of a marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with. Right? You imagine, oh, I'm going to get married, and it's all going to be great, but the problem is you're self-centered, And the person you're married is self-centered. And that doesn't just go away. In fact, marriage becomes this crucible where all the self-centeredness comes out. And so Keller says, this is a cancer. This is a problem. And it's there from the very beginning. And you've got to learn to get rid of it. And the question becomes, well, what's the treatment for such a disease? 
Because the, the approach that the Apostle Paul is going to tell us to take toward marriage, you can't do it if you're self-centered. So how do we get rid of, of this cancer? What's the radiation? What's the chemotherapy that gets rid of the cancer of self-centeredness in a marriage? And the answer is the spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled life. That's the section of Scripture we're in here in the book of Ephesians, is Paul has just told us, beginning in uh, verse uh, 18, to not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but to be filled with the Spirit. He says, listen, don't have alcohol, don't have other substances control your life and, and, and form how you live. Rather, have the Holy Spirit of God who was given to you when you trusted in Christ. Have Him fill you, have Him animate you, have Him change you. Live that way. And the rest of this section is talking about what the Spirit-filled life looks like. The first two descriptions he gives in verses 19 and 20 kind of sound like how we would think the Spirit-filled life would be. He says this, here's the Spirit-filled life. If you're filled with the Spirit, verse 19, you'll address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, when you're filled with the Spirit, there's a song in your heart. You're joyful. You're giving praise to God. And, and when you think about being spirit-filled, maybe what you have in your mind is an image of kind of you being in a place with a lot of people celebrating Jesus, and this kind of wash of God's love comes over you, and you're thrilled and energized and encouraged. Is that, that's, that's part of the spirit-filled life. Then he says in verse 20, here's the rest of the spirit-filled life, is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be thankful. Not just feeling thankful, but giving thanks, expressing gratitude to God. And maybe that's how you think of the Spirit-filled life, is you're by yourself and you're focused on the Lord, and no matter what circumstances have come against you, you're still going to give thanks to God. And that also is part of the Spirit-filled life. But look at what he says in the next verse, in verse 21. Because this colors and animates the rest of what he talks about in this section. He just says, if you're filled with the Spirit, you will also be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So get this. The Spirit-filled life is not just kind of this moment between you and God in private. And the Spirit-filled life is not just this exciting moment between you and God in public. But rather, the Spirit-filled life is also lived in relationships. And the life of being filled with the Spirit is a life of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, of saying, you go first, I'll defer to you, not my will but your be done. I'll try to just love and sacrifice and serve and bless you. I've been blessed by God to be a blessing to you. That's the attitude of the Spirit-filled life. So it's no surprise then that what Paul does in this next section is it's not like just like this, well, I guess now it's time to talk about the family. No. He's saying one of the ways that... The spirit-filled life takes shape is in marriages and in parenting and in work and in all these other relationships that we come across. And so that's what we're going to be looking at the next four weeks or so is how the Holy Spirit shapes us and forms us to live differently in these important relationships. So what we're going to talk about today is the prototype of a spirit-filled marriage and the surprise of a spirit-filled marriage, the prototype and the surprise. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and how you speak to us. God, we pray that we would be open to receive, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you would change us, that you would 
do that not just by putting a song in our heart and making us grateful, but by allowing us to have humility and deference toward one another, even in our closest and most important relationships. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So first is the prototype of marriage. Let me just ask you, what's your model for marriage? When you think about if you're married, you go, okay, what, what do I want a marriage to be? What, what am I trying to do? What, what model are you looking to? What are you basing the sense of what marriage should look like on? Here's the thing. For most of us, we would base it, whether we want to or not, on our parents. If they had a great marriage, you go, oh, I want to be just like them. If they had a horrible marriage, you go, I want to be anything but like them. Maybe your parents weren't even married, and so you had to deal with all of those dynamics, and that absolutely shapes how you approach marriage. Maybe you go, well, I I don't really have a good model with my family, and so I'm going to look elsewhere. I'm going to try to find other people that have good marriages and model based off of them. But here's the thing I I would bet that significantly more than half of us would say, I've never actually been close to people that had a really great marriage. I bet the majority of us would say, I don't know that I grew up in the kind of, around the kind of marriage I'd want to have. And I've heard of people that have good marriages, but I'm not sure. I think they're with Bigfoot and the Easter Bunny, and I'm not sure where they really are, but I've heard that those people exist. And if they're there, I kind of maybe know them at a distance, but I've never lived with them. I've never seen it up close. Like, I only see the kind of Instagram, you know, family photo, cleaned up version of what they have. I I don't know what it's like in the nitty-gritty. So this is really hard. It's hard to create a beautiful thing when you've never had a very good model, right? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in this, in this passage, is he's trying to say, hey, let me give you a new model. Let me give you a different prototype. Let me help you see what the model, what the prototype of a spirit-filled marriage is, and it's Christ and his church. After talking about the roles of wives and the roles of husbands in verses 22 and following, he says this in verse 32. Look at chapter 5, verse 32. He says, this mystery, this mystery of marriage, is profound. It's a mega mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Get this. Marriage is to show us Christ and the church. And the thing that should inform and shape the prototype for our marriages is Christ's relationship with his church. Get this. God did not create Adam and Eve and look at marriage and go, wow, I'm actually kind of surprised at how cool this marriage thing is. I should do this for my son. It didn't work like that. Rather, God knew that his son would have a bride, and he created marriage to help us point to that. This marriage is really about that. That's what we sang, or what we read about earlier in Revelation, is how the, when Christ returns, it's Christ coming for his bride. The gospel is what shapes our marriages, and it's what our marriages point to. Get this. This is so key. Paul is not basing his model for marriage on anything cultural. He's going to speak to the cultural dynamics of his day, but he's not basing how marriages should function on first century culture. Rather, he's basing how marriage should function on Jesus and his relationship with his church. This is why singles need this message today. If you're single today, if you're like, I'm not married and I want to be, or I'm not married and I definitely don't want to be, 
I'm not married and I'll never do that again. Whatever the case is, you need this message because this message is not mostly about marriage. It's mostly giving you a picture about Christ and his church. And actually next week we're going to spend the entire sermon really focused on that relationship of Christ and his church. Get this. Marriage is the sign of the reality that we have in relationship with Jesus. You don't have to have the sign to have the reality. You don't have to. You get the real thing with Christ if you're part of his church. Jesus is both this great bachelor and this glorious groom. Jesus was single. Paul was single. You don't have to be married in order to be fulfilled in life. You can have Christ, and hopefully this message will even show you some of the ways that Christ has loved you. So the prototype of spirit-filled marriage is Christ, Jesus, and his church. But there's a surprise of spirit-filled marriage, a surprise Let's read this surprise uh, together. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 22. Uh, Having talked about how we're all submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's part of the spirit-filled life in verse 21. He says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave him up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There, Paul's just quoting Genesis 2. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, you might have read that and gone, what's the surprise? Like, this sounds just as antiquated as I thought you were going to make it sound. This sounds just as old-fashioned. This sounds just as out of date. I mean, seriously, submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands are the head of the church. I mean, come on, right? You're just rolling your eyes going, seriously? I thought you said he wasn't basing his view of marriage on the first century, but he was basing it on Christ and the church. But that just sounds completely antiquated. Here's what you need to see. Paul is absolutely countercultural in this. Paul is going to tell wives and husbands things that no one else would be telling them in their day because he's speaking about a bigger reality of Christ in the church. See, people in those days, just like people in our day, what are we really concerned about? We're concerned about our rights, our power. This is how a lot of these discussions go about the roles of men and women, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the home. Well, 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 who... Who has the right to do this? Who has the right to teach? Who has the right to lead? Who has the right to make the decisions? Who has the power? Who has the control? Here's the thing. That's the wrong set of questions. Those are not questions shaped 
by the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, what you have is a king who's humbling himself and not holding on to his rights, but giving them up in love. That's the kingdom of God. And so any discussion that begins with, well, who gets the power? Who gets the rights? Wrong set of questions. It's like, it's like that's what my kids argue about. Well, well, mom, dad, you guys are leaving. Well, can I be in charge? Can I be the boss? No. Just because you want to be. No, you can't be. Like, why do you have to be? That's an immature kind of thing that's not shaped by the gospel. I love what Kathy Keller writes in that book I mentioned earlier. She says this, both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. See, this is interesting because Jesus is the model for both husbands and wives. There are different roles. There are different expectations. There are different responsibilities. But in both cases, Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model of the leader who humbles himself and serves. And Jesus is the model of the person who reverentially listens to the Father. It says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is our model in both cases. And so that's the real surprise. The surprise is not that he tells wives to submit and husbands to be the head and to love. The the surprise is how he infuses those roles with meaning. And so let's talk about those particular roles. First, Paul addresses wives. He says, spirit-filled wives are about deferential respect. Spirit-filled wives lean into deferential respect. Understand this about the first century context that Paul's writing to. There was no middle class. There was a small group of people who were rich and elite, and everyone else were poor slaves, okay? And so for the majority of people who were in that kind of poor category, and even for many of the wealthier upper class people, the the absolute understanding was that wives were like property. They didn't get to make decisions. They didn't get to have real choices. They They weren't important. No one was elevating them and saying, wow, you're an equal image bearer of God. Just just." serve us. They were, they were servants. Now, interestingly, I was reading a lot of different things about how in the first century um, there was this movement among that upper class group of women to kind of have some women's liberation of sorts, where they were kind of saying, well, we're not going to be treated like that anymore. We're going to pursue politics, and we're going to pursue education, and we're going to pursue enterprise, and a number of women that were doing that, and not just doing those things, but they were also casting off any kind of cultural thing that made it look like women had any other role to play other than being in charge. It's not that different from today. So that's the context, and here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how the Apostle Paul challenges both of those notions. Look at what he says, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice it does not say, wives, submit to men. Women, submit to men. It doesn't say that. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. So he, it's not just women are less, hey, get out of here, women. It's no, 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 submit to your husband. Notice this also, Paul doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. He's going to say that in chapter 6, verse 1, where he's going to say, children, obey your parents. He's going to say that in chapter 6, verse 5, where he says, slaves, obey your masters. He's going to use the word obey in other places. Here he's not doing that. So that's challenging that first set of, of people that viewed this as just women as wives as property. No, 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 no. 
Paul says, no, I'm not calling you to just obey. I'm not calling you to submit like somebody submits where they're in a headlock, right? I think that's, some of, that's the image we think of when we hear submit, right? The person who's in a headlock and it's like, submit, submit, submit. I'm going to choke you out, submit. And they tap, okay, uncle. It's not, submit is not give up. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's saying, no, no, no. You're not called to obey, but you are called to respect. To respect. Look at what it says again in verse 33 in the summary of this. He says that each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Look up here for just a moment because I, I want to kind of visually try to illustrate this with my hands. Get, get what's happening. In verse 22, Paul says, wives submit to your husbands. In verse 25, Paul says, husbands love your wives. He explains all of those things. And then, after, and then he sums it up in verse 33. And instead of saying wives submit to your husbands, he says wives respect your husbands. But he still says husbands love your wives. I think that's a clue to say that what Paul means here is not some sort of obedience where you're like a slavish, I don't have any opinions or views or any ability to do anything that I want. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's saying when he says submit is he's saying have an attitude of respect. You're an image bearer of God. You're equal to your husband in the sight of God. And yes, culture has put you in a place where you don't have any rights, but you have the ability to respect him. And for you in the upper class who are just like, hey, this whole thing's garbage, dismantle the patriarchy, let's get rid of all of it. Hey, 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 hey. No, no, no. God's put you in a, a place to treat your husband with respect. Yeah, go work. Yeah, get education. Yeah, get involved in politics. But, but don't do it at the expense of respecting your husband. So, him talking about submitting is not as much about giving up as it is giving to. Right? So don't think submit like a headlock. Think submit like I'm going to submit this paper. I'm going to bring my strengths. I'm going to bring my gifts. I'm going to give this to you. This gift of respect. This gift of following your lead. Now get this. There are times when a wife should resist her husband's leadership. And I'm not going to get into all that, partly because we put out a blog post that's been posted on our website today that outlines at least four instances when wives should resist their husband's leadership, okay? But overall, what Paul's saying, even with the phrase, in everything, in verse 24, you see that? Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He's not saying wives shouldn't make any decisions. He's saying wives should have an ongoing attitude all the time of respect, for their husbands. Continual affirmation, support, encouragement, respect. And, and ladies, I think you know, that's what, that's what men need. That's what they want. That's what your husband craves. Get this, it's not mostly that he craves your love. He craves your respect. They did a survey with 7,000 or so men and asked a couple of questions. The first one was, men, would you rather feel alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? There's your choice, right? And I'm like, well, neither. I'd like, I'd like neither. But if I had to pick, I would pick what 75% of men surveyed picked, which was I'd rather be alone and unloved than disrespected. 
They asked another question. Men, in the middle of a conflict with your wife, are you more likely to feel that she doesn't respect you or that she doesn't love you? 80% of men said, in the middle of a conflict, I'm more likely to feel that she doesn't respect me. Paul knows this. God knows this. This is how God wired us. And he says, wives, if you're going to live with this as, as a life of the Spirit, it's going to be a life of deferential respect. People sometimes ask my wife, Molly, we've been married 16 years, and they'll, they'll read this passage, and, and naturally, just like you're probably thinking now, well, what's this look like? And so I'll ask Molly, like, what, what was the time that you submitted to Luke? And she really has a hard time thinking of an answer. Here's why. Because in her mind, submission is not a headlock, I remember this time when life got us in a headlock, and so I tapped out. In her mind, it's, it's like asking, what was the time when you respected Luke? She's going, well, I always try to respect Luke. I always try to honor him. I always try to encourage and support him. Now, there are times when, you know, we'll reach a disagreement. Like, there's a funny story she tells about our entertainment center when we first got married. When we first got married, uh, we had bought all this grown-up furniture in, our, in, a, in a new house, but we still had this TV stand that I had in my dorm in college. And she was like, honey, do you think we could get like an entertainment center with like doors that could shut and like you wouldn't see all the wires and like that, wouldn't that be just kind of nicer? And I was like, but honey, we're trying to save money and we're trying to like live on one income and like I just am not sure that's the greatest priority. It wasn't that I loved the TV stand, I just said, you know, and so here's what you had. You had her and I legitimately different view, different opinion, and kind of like, well, we both have good reasons for it. And what I loved was, it wasn't like when people came over, she's like, to the other people, hey, do you see our stupid TV stand? Hey, my moron husband won't let me get an entertainment center, right? That wasn't her attitude. It wasn't nagging. It wasn't griping. It wasn't, you know, spreading the cords out so they looked even worse, right? Like, she wasn't manipulating anything, but what she, she said, this is the only example she can think of, like, well, I guess that was a time when I guess I submitted, because he had good reasons, and I had good reasons, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll follow your lead. And a few months later, we got an entertainment center, and I was like, of course, what was I thinking? <laughs> of course we needed this, like, duh, you know? But she had the respect and the humility to play the Jesus role. To say, I don't, I, don't need, I don't need to win this. I don't need to be right. I'm going to honor you in that process. And that moment is indicative of a life of respect. Get this. You'll never be able to submit in the moment if you aren't living respectfully the rest of the time. So spirit-filled wives live lives of deferential respect. But what about husbands? <laughs> it's fascinating. There's way more ink spilled on the husbands here. And Paul's challenge to the husbands is actually even more countercultural than it would be to the wives. Look at what he says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul had already used in verse 23 the phrase head. He said, for the husband is the head of the wife. And, and you may have heard that and gone, ooh, that's, see, I don't like that language. That makes me uncomfortable. And that language would have been very familiar in the first century. In the first century, people were talked about all the time in positions of authority that they were the head, the head of a government, the head of an army. 
And here was the prevailing assumption. The prevailing assumption was the head's the most important thing, and if anything has to be sacrificed, it's the body for the sake of the head. Right? If there's a general in a battle, protect him because he's the head. Look at what Paul does. He turns that on his head. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that, but that's, that's true. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, listen, if anybody's going to sacrifice, it's the head, not the body. Do you see how countercultural that is? Similarly, there was a total expectation that leaders were not expected to love the people under them. Aristotle said this, it is the part of a ruler, a head, to be loved, not to love. There's no expectation that, that a leader had to love his people, that a husband had to love his wife. In fact, get this, outside of the New Testament, there are no first century documents that ever tell a husband to love his wife. And there are lots of first century documents with household codes. Here's how it should work in, in homes. It, that doesn't exist outside the New Testament. And so Paul is saying, listen, husbands, yes, you're the head. Yes, you're the leader. Yes, you have authority and responsibility. But get this, you are to use that to die to yourself and love your wife. That is not an authority you flaunt. That is not an authority that you bow up to demonstrate. Well, I'm the head of this family. Yeah, you're an un-Jesus-like head at that point. You're a Nero head, but you're not a Jesus head. And Jesus reshapes this whole thing. Not just that we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church, but it even says we're supposed to love Christ just as we love our own bodies. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Here's Paul's assumption. He goes, listen, men, you feed yourself, right? Like you take a shower and you clean up and you make sure you have good clothes and you make sure you, like, have the same level of concern for yourself that you, that you have for yourself, have that for your wife. Now, I know there's some women that are like, oh, oh, God, please, please don't let, please don't let him treat me like he treats his body, because he treats himself horribly. <laughs> like, no, God, give me more grace than that, you know? But, but for the most part, what Paul's saying is, you treat yourself well, you look out for yourself, you nourish yourself, you take care of yourself, you cherish yourself, treat your body this way, too. Or treat your wife this way too. So love as Christ loved the church. Love as you love yourself. Yes, you have leadership. Yes, you have authority. Yes, there might be moments when you have the burden of the final say. But you play the Jesus role with sacrificial love. You go, well, gosh, what is that? What does that look like? Well, it might look like a few different things. I've made a list of a couple things I think that looks like. One is, men, I think that looks like taking responsibility for the temperature in your home. You're like, I'd love to. She won't let me turn the AC down. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the temperature of your home. What's the temperature relationally? 
How do we relate? What's the temperature in your communication? How do we talk through difficult things? How do we encourage? What's the temperature, spiritually speaking? Listen, men, you are the thermostat, not the thermometer. Thermometer just reads the temperature. And some men are tempted to be so passive and so checked out. They go, well, I just kind of let my wife do that. You know, well, well she leads the kids spiritually. And, and she makes sure we pray. And, and you know, she kind of runs the money. And she kind of does everything. And I'm kind of checked out. Now, by all means, husband and wife should play the specific roles, do the specific chores that they're gifted to do. But, but you take responsibility as a man. You can't check out. I was uh, texted by a buddy uh, just the other day while I was preparing this. He said, hey, man, how can, I, how can I pray for you? And I said, well, I'm preparing this sermon on husbands and wives. And he wrote back, all right, I'll pray for you, but just tell the men to join a fight club. I said, okay, well, I don't know what to do with the rest of my day now because I guess my sermon's prepped. Like, and his point was, so if you don't know, fight clubs are this thing that we have here at Gateway where five or six guys get together and read the scriptures and pray and encourage one another in the areas that they need it to be faithful men. And so this guy was saying, well, I don't know about marriage, but I just know every guy needs that. So listen, if you're going, I need to take responsibility. Fight clubs, they're kicking off soon. Go on our website, get signed up for a fight club, get paired up with some other guys who are trying to take responsibility and lead like Jesus with you. But I've also wondered, what, is this, what, what if this looked like some specific things? Like, what if men had to be told, honey, could you stop cleaning the kitchen and just come sit down with us for a few minutes? <laughs> See, your laughter reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals that we want to say we play the Jesus role, but we don't want to play it. Men, what if, what if you did a bulk of the laundry? What if you did a bulk of the cooking, a bulk of the cleaning? Some of you do that. This one hit home for me, especially this weekend. I'm like, gosh, I, I know I'm going to say this in this sermon. I'm going to have to live it out. What if men change most of the diapers? Right, normally it's like, hey, buddy, go tell, go tell mom. Go tell mom. Poop, poop, yeah, go, go tell mom. That's not the Jesus role, right? I mean, let's just be nitty-gritty honest here. Like, that's not how Jesus acts. And if we're going to be like Jesus, maybe we step up in those ways. Men, maybe this looks like making sure your wife has the car that she needs before you get the car you want. Maybe this looks like you sacrificing time and energy and money so that your wife can pursue a dream, so that she can start a business, so that she can go back to work, so that she can get more education, so that she can pursue something she's dreamt about pursuing. Maybe, maybe playing the Jesus role means sacrificing in those ways. Here's what I know. Man, if you're like me, I want to be known as Christ-like. I want to be known as a servant leader. But most of the time, I don't actually want to serve. And that reveals that I need the Holy Spirit. 
Because that might be what you're thinking as you listen to this whole thing. Well, gosh, this all sounds impossible. I mean, do you know who I'm married to? Do you know how hard it would be to just keep playing the Jesus role here? Like, this would be really, really hard. It is hard. No, no, no. It's not hard. It's impossible. That's why Paul says, you're going to need the Holy Spirit to do this. You try to do this in your own strength, not happening. But if you are filled with the Spirit, if you are filled with the love of Christ for you, not only will you praise him, not only will you thank him, but you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and you will play your role, the Jesus role, in the way that Jesus gives you the strength to do it. That's why we need the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we're very aware of our failures and our shortcomings and the places where we look out for our comfort and our rights more than we give that up. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. I pray that you would give us faith in Christ. I pray that you would give us trust that the way of Jesus is a better way. Not just that it's morally right, but that it's actually life-giving and beautiful. Help us to trust that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.